Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Before I introduce my co-host this week, I should note that this episode marks five years of this podcast. Our first episode debuted April 28th, 2017, and this episode will debut April 28th, 2022. Uh, It has been a remarkable run. I never would have guessed when we started this that we would still be doing it five years later. uh, That is a huge testament to you, the audience, for, for listening and engaging and responding. Huge thanks to my producer who's been with me from the beginning, Michael Carroll, and of course to all of my co-hosts over the years, especially the regular cast, Matt Harris, Michael Fulmer, Barry Clarkson, Felice Sloan, and today's co-host, she is the brand representative or the brand ambassador for a craft syrup company. She is also the consultant who has created the cocktail programs for a number of successful Houston bars and restaurants. We follow her on Instagram at klindahtx. Linda Salinas, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Uchi has announced that they are turning the old Southside Espresso space into a new concept that will be a 12-seat omakase counter. Now, if you've been to Uchi or anyone who's been to Uchi knows that they already offer an omakase-style menu anywhere in the dining room, but this will be uh, presumably a more premium experience. It will be a dedicated counter with, without the sushi cases, uh, more of a personal connection. Linda, let me just throw it to you. I mean, do you think that this is kind of a logical step for Uchi to expand what they do with a like a, a more premium offering? I mean, I'll be honest with you. How much more fucking premium can you get for Uchi? It's already a really fantastic concept. Well, I, I think they're trying to get a little of that that heat, like the, you know, hidden omakase, neo kinokawa even even mf sushi right doesn't have the the sushi cases when you sit at the counter it, it's just you staring across the the block at the chefs that, that are working right in front of you I, I don't know i mean i don't think that uchi's trying to get a part of what neo and you know and the hidden omakase like those boys are made look at that freaking loro loro money that freaking frozen cocktail business or you know the little snacks that they have at laura i mean those guys are those guys are doing okay so like if they're really trying to get a cut of anything it's eh, we'll get a couple more seats at a a premium price let's party well right i I don't think they're necessarily doing it for the money but i remember uchi opened about 10 years ago like almost exactly 10 years ago good lord yeah you're right and when it did, it was like every chef in town went and celebrated their birthday there. You know, I just, I remember seeing that on social media. It was like a nonstop kind of a thing. And I haven't seen that in a while from Uchi. You know, that, that, that heat, that, that cachet has sort of faded. But that is not what happened. But the thing is, is that you have to think about it. Back then, people knew who was behind Uchi. 
Right. They knew it was Kaz Edwards and Paige Presley and, and Philip Spear, right? It was like. Thank you. So that's why it wasn't because it was Uchi. It was Uchi brought like the noise. And that's the thing is that that's the one thing about Houston, Houston diners. I don't know. Call it out if I'm wrong, but we like to be connected to people, not to spaces. So when someone, a pit master or a beloved chef, spaces don't make things wonderful. It's people make something wonderful. So just saying that you have a hidden omikase room, you know, with 12 seats doesn't tell me anything. Right. You want to know who the sushi chef is behind the counter. Thank you. And I think, and I think that like the readers that, that listen to this show want to know who the hell that that's going to be. Well, because that's what we we care about. Right. Well, we don't know that yet, obviously, because it's not going to open until the end of the year or maybe even early 2023. So they haven't announced the chef yet, but, but what I will say, I think from Uchi's perspective is, you know, they're like the Alabama college football team where the, the brand is more important than the individual players, right? They will, they will find the next generation of Philip Spears and reload and it will, the, the quality of food will be excellent regardless of the individual personalities. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, and I'm sure everyone that has heard me speak on this podcast, stop giving me information until you're almost open. Like, Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Like, give it to me when I'm ready for it. Don't be telling me six months. I've told you that a hundred times. <laughs> I don't care. And neither does anybody else. Nobody cares six months from now. You, know you would be surprised. Be? You would be surprised by how many people want to read articles about things that aren't happening for six months. For another six months? Get out of here, Gramps. Move it along. All right. Next. All right. Topic number two. <laughs> Speaking of chefs and people that we feel connected to Chris Shepard has made some changes at Georgia James Tavern, which is his casual bar oriented restaurant in the market square tower downtown. Nick Wong, who had been the chef at UB preserve and moved over to Georgia James Tavern when UB preserve closed is leaving the company. He is being replaced by Tim Redding who we've talked about on the show a little bit because he was running a Mexican restaurant at Bravery Chef Fall called Ishim, and he worked for Hugo Ortega at Caracol. In addition to changing the chef, Chris Shepard has rebranded the restaurant. It is now GJ Tavern. And when I asked Chris about why rebrand, he said there was a lot of confusion among customers who would either come to the tavern expecting Georgia James or would show up at Georgia James expecting the tavern. And so they had to rebrand to eliminate confusion. So Linda, let me just, let me just throw it all to you. What do you sort of make of these changes? And maybe do you want to start by saying something nice about Nick Wong and his time working for Chris Shepard before we talk about the tavern. Do, do I want to say something nice about Nick Wong? I mean, what is there nice to say about him? He's a great chef. 
He's moving along. I, honestly, Nick Wong has fantastic food. Like, honestly, UB Preserve had some of the best dishes that the company has seen. Innovative. I love his, like, plays on dumplings. Like, I just, I mean, honestly, I, I don't have to say anything nice about Nick because Nick's a badass. I want to know where Nick's going next. Well, Nick, Nick isn't quite ready to talk about what he's doing next. So I, you know, okay. uh, I, I did have a reader message me on Instagram, be like, you should have Nick on your podcast. So let me just say publicly, anytime Nick Wong wants to come on this podcast, he can come on this podcast to talk about his decision to leave or what's next for him or, or anything. We'll, you know, his favorite, uh, his favorite restaurants in Chinatown, Nick Wong, whatever you want, come back anytime. That, uh, that, that, that would be that would be awesome to hear what he has to say about like where he likes to eat and so on and so forth because like I really I li- like his style like you know he's like he's playful and he doesn't take himself too seriously I really enjoy I've, I'm really enjoying to get to know Nick through his food so um well right and and you know Nick is someone who came to Houston after working for David Chang in New York for a long time he worked for Chris Cosentino in California and he's really embraced Houston. You know, he, he did some great events and pop-ups and one-off menus at, at UB Preserve. You know, you mentioned the dumplings, right? Those Buddha and shumai were fantastic. That crispy mm-hmm. rice salad is something I'll think about for a long time. I mean, when UB Preserve opened, there was this like black rice stuffed roast chicken that like maybe my favorite restaurant chicken dish anywhere for all time. So whatever is next for Nick, I hope that it's in Houston and I hope that it's relatively soon and nothing but good wishes for Nick. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm but a peasant, you know, to his actually to, to his palate. So, you know, <laughs> I, I want to see, I, I, I want to, and I, and you know what? I very, very, very rarely do I say anything like that about a lot of people. So. Uh, All right. And then yeah, now in terms of the see. tavern, now I, I had the chance to meet with both Chris and Tim Redding, the new chef. And I think, you know, that this is a concept that's maybe struggled to find itself a little bit. And so they're going to, they're going to ground it in like classic dishes, right? Roast chicken, roast fish, uh, steak frites, uh, a burger and fries, good cocktails, couple of salads. It's more affordable than Georgia James, certainly, right? Because the, the most expensive entree, I think, is like you know, 40 something dollars and the stakes of Georgia James are, you know, 70, 80 bucks and more. So, you know, and it's, and it's bar forward and it's more casual. Uh, well, I mean, it's called a freaking tavern. I don't expect, I, I hope that there isn't a $79 steak on the tavern menu. You know, it's like, there, there's a part of me that's, I mean, and I'll be honest with you, like the, there's a part of me that wished that we could see, I wished honestly that Georgia James Tavern had like the best hits of Hay Merchant. Right. The wings, the cease and desist burger, the chicken fried steak, that kind of stuff. No, like the cool stuff that Nick did, you know, like the uh, Vietnamese fish and chips, sure. the, the chicken and dumplings or like the big mass items that we that we got to know on the uh, on some of the menus that I've seen come out of that kitchen. I don't know, like there's just like there's a lot of little things that I that I've 
that I've seen the evolution of, of that empire has been. And like, I, I miss some of it. Well, right. Like you were saying over the years, we got to know a lot of the people who worked for Chris in various capacities, chefs, servers, bartenders, and you know, it's a time of transition They're They've, you know, they closed 1100 Westheimer. Georgia James's steakhouse is operating where one fifth used to be. It's going to move to a new location in a couple of months. You know, they just opened wild oats. They're going to open an Italian restaurant called Pastore and in, and in all that shuffling, some of the familiar faces that we had known over the years are no longer working for Chris. And so it's a little bit disorienting, but you know, you'll get to know the new people, you know, you'll get to know, Tim Redding and you'll get to know uh, Chris Davies who's running Pastore and, and all these other people, but it's a moment. It's, it's definitely a moment of transition and, and figuring out the right, I don't know, methodology or, or ethos or, or perspective for Georgia James Tavern. Now GJ Tavern has taken a long time, right? It opened, you know, it opened in the fall and it's, it's just now on a direction that they feel really excited about. So it's tough. All right. <laughs> All right. Topic number three. I'm going to, you know, in your role as the craft syrup lady, you, you travel to other Texas cities. So I'm wondering, have you been to Citizen, a nightclub in Dallas? No, I have not. I actually, um, I, I'm not a nightclub person. Just because I make cocktails for a living does not make me an aficionado to our, to, uh, nightclubs you speak of (laughs) all right well citizen which has been very successful in dallas is coming to houston they have claimed the former classic space on washington avenue people may recall this was announced that it was going to be called a different nightclub concept called wild child but there was some shifting in the the ownerships and the partnerships and you know all of that so instead of being wild child it's going to be citizen I'm like you. I am not a nightclub person. I why? I mean, like my weird question, and I hate to say this. Why is this news? It's well, a freaking. It's a freaking club on Washington. They're gonna flip in six months. They're gonna make so much money, and the bottle service is gonna be outrageous. Now, what is different about these guys? Are they gonna have delicious snacks there? I don't know. They certainly have a kitchen, right? Like you know, it was a <sighs> restaurant for a long time. I will say. The reason that this is news is because our readers get excited about new nightclubs. And every time we write really? about Sakai, Bottle Blonde, okay, you know, right. whatever, you know. We'll, make, well, I mean, if the people have spoken. With the people, the people want what they want. They want to know about nightclubs. Okay. All right. Well, just send, send over the questions. I want to hear about it. And I will gladly go uh, on Culture Maps, Dine, and uh, check out these clubs and see what's going on. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll put a pin in that, but yes, you're right. Pricey bottle service, VIP rooftop patio, the whole thing. It looks very posh. It'll open sometime in a couple of months and, you know, we'll report back. All right. Linda, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. This podcast is sponsored by Green Street. Covering four city blocks in the heart of downtown Houston, 
Green Street offers access to dining, entertainment, and more. Green Street is an ideal location for dinner and drinks before or after attending a game downtown at one of its four restaurants, Guadalajara del Centro, The Palm, House of Blues, or M&S Seafood. Its proximity to Discovery Green also means Green Street is an ideal stop as part of a larger crawl through downtown's many attractions. Over the years, I've seen any number of concerts at House of Blues, but Green Street has other entertainment options as well. Pete's Dueling Piano Bar offers an energetic atmosphere for grabbing a drink, and friends can gather for a night of friendly competition at 810 Billiards and Bowling. Whatever the occasion, make Green Street your downtown destination of choice. Located at 1201 Fannin Street, go to greenstreetdowntown.com to see a full list of restaurant, bar, and entertainment destinations. Linda, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you about Reiki Na. You and I went to uh, Reiki Na's location in City Center several months ago. Recently, Thomas Stacy, the chef behind Reiki Na, decided to, to leave City Center and return to his roots. It's now operating out of private home in Montrose that used to be an antique store. It's, uh, it's slimmed down. It was He was doing 20 seats per seating. Now he's just doing eight Linda, you know, we, when we went to Reiki Na before, you and I had a good time. We enjoyed the experience and, and interacting with the, the people that we were sitting near. But we both, or at least I certainly questioned the value, right? Because I didn't feel like the ingredients justified the cost, which is currently $175 per person, uh, including tax and tip. So let me just throw this to you. How do you compare the old Reiki Na to the new Reiki Na? It's a totally different machine altogether. I think that having a bigger space and having to like manage different types of clientele was, I think maybe um, it just wasn't my favorite, but this next time, this go around there was what, 11 seats, 10 seats? Well, we were eight. I think he could see, he said he'll do up to 12. It was exceptional. It was really good. It was thoughtful. Everything was coursed out wonderfully. And not only that, but you get to have, don't you don't have like the weird blind date sort of like vibes that you, you get whenever you have to dine with people you don't know. And I think that that was kind of, that was one of the things that I didn't like was being forced to eat with people that I'm, that I don't know. It's like, you're, you're going on a weird blind date, but you're not going to get anything out of it ultimately, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, so just to clarify for people, we booked, they, they very generously offered me the opportunity to, to round up seven of my friends and have a, essentially a dinner party for eight people at Reiki Na. So, Yes. So I invited you and six other people and we all knew each other. And it was like having a dinner party at someone's house, but with the quality of a professional kitchen, but it, it is still open to the public and you can book it on Resi, you know, and if you're two or four, then there will be strangers at the table with you, you know, so that is a possibility for people. They might still have to navigate that getting in their strangers. And, and I asked Thomas about that. And he said that, Essentially what happens is people sort of start, they sort of start by introducing themselves and maybe talking about whatever the first couple of courses are. And then typically by the end of the night, 
maybe lightly lubricated by the wine pairings, everybody's friends. So yeah. he thinks it he thinks it works both ways. I love that we got to do it with with eight people that all knew and liked each other. Cause I because I thought I thought that was super fun. I think, I mean, I think that if you're, if you're a food person, first off, if you're going to Neo, if you're going to Hidden Omakase, if you're going to, to Tamo's thing, you like exceptional food and filling up a table full of your friends and having a fantastic meal. And not only just fantastic meal, it's just like from cold things, hot things, uh, lowbrow, like just from the, from the gamut, it's just a really, really great food experience. So i I highly recommend it. It was fantastic. Honestly, I it's all of it all together. I would, I would do, I would do it all over again. Well, and, and one of the things we talked about last time was I was a little bit uncertain about the, the ingredients. He, he's really upgraded, you know, the, the quality of what he's using, you know, it, it ended, the savory courses ended with a5 Wagyu, there was caviar to start, you know, and in between we had beautiful Aura King salmon, we had a, a duck roulade that I thought was really good. And, and just that, you know, the highlight for me was a vegetarian dish, which is so rare, but that risotto style dish with the, the mushrooms uh, and the Thai spice, uh, it's so basically good. Tom Yum, it was Tom Yum risotto with mushrooms. It was incredible. Uh, was just like one of my the best dishes I think I've had in a long time. And, and so, yeah, I, I feel like for people who like this kind of dining, add this to the mix, right. You know, as, as, as an alternative to hidden omakase or degust or even, even March, because it's, it's a, just, it's such a unique environment to have to be seated around an eight top and knowing that you could do it with, with a group of friends, I think would make for a very special, you know, birthday dinner or, or that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm with you. I I was I was really impressed by by this new version of Reiki Not, and I think it just makes so much more sense in a home, kind of the way Thomas started than it ever did in, in City Center. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, for the second restaurant, I think we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit of a disagreement about the Warwick, which is the new restaurant that opened on Westheimer oh. in the former Houston space. So I'm gonna get out of the way. I'm gonna let you rant, and then I'm gonna follow up and and. No, 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 mister. You go ahead and you start first and then you can come back and we can talk. About all right. All right. So, so we went to a friends and family service at their invitation. What I like about this restaurant is that Antoine Ware is the chef. He worked for Chris Shepard for a long time at, at Catalan and then at Haymerchant and Underbelly. He ran Harold's in the Heights uh, for a couple of three years. He's been kind of laying low. I know he was working for Luby's at least for a little bit. But it's nice to have him back doing, you know, the kind of Cajun Creole elevated fare that that's really been his trademark. And and I think it's fun that they're doing some kind of Houston's um, homage dishes like a Hawaiian ribeye with grilled pineapple, uh, Thai noodle salad and spinach and artichoke dip. Now, it wasn't it wasn't a perfect meal. And I'll, I'll talk about. But, you know, it was friends and family. I'm kind of willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, but let me, let me throw it to you. What did, what were your first impressions of, of the Warwick? Um, so first and foremost, it was a halting. Do you have a reservation? Are you on the list? And I was like, 
excuse me, are you on the list? This is a friends and family. And I was like, uh, or no, no, it wasn't even friends and family. It was like, this is a private event. And I was like, uh, yes, I'm on, I'm on the list with a guest of, you know, whatever, whatever. And, and then there was a troop of, of, um, how can I put this? A troop of nightclub goers that were waiting to get in. Uh, ran into another friend of a, a, a brand friend of mine. We chatted for a second, and you know, and then I, I was I was led into a dark, uh, dark, elegant space that had music th- pumping through the speakers at the um, at the restaurant. So it is a nightclub, a nightclub vibe that has some. Houston's vibe and and really in all honesty the the reason why the food is any good is I mean I know that that it's not the Houston's legacy it's that chef is fantastic so like we had some really good dishes but I mean ultimately it was like it was a, a sweet a sweeter palette of cocktails and food And I don't know, I just, I just, the vibe felt, I think it would be a disservice for someone to think that it has, it has a a Houston's homage because it's not, it doesn't have the polished service that you get from a Houston's. It's a nightclub with a couple of dishes, you know? No, no, no. What it has are booths, right? They kept the, I mean, they're, they're new in the sense that they've been you know, new, new covering, new, whatever, like they kept the booth style seating. That's a Houston signature and it's dimly lit like Houston's was, but, but no. And they, they've recreated their own version of some of the, uh, of three popular dishes. I, that's, yeah. that's kind of where, it, that's kind of where the Houston's comparison sets. It's definitely its own thing. Yeah. I just don't want anyone to think because like you and I love old Houston's, you know, like, prime rib and like, and people that, that have been going to Houston's for a long time, I would be upset if I went in there and had this, this experience. Cause it's completely different. It's something else altogether. So yeah, that's the difference. I mean, that's a difference, but like, I don't, I don't like it that you're not that you, but that, that, that it's touting that it's anything close to a Houston's, but it's not, it's a, it's a bumping scene, be seen kind of like vibe. But I think that there's nothing wrong with that, with that store, that style of dining. It does very well in so many other, so many other concepts. People like, like feeling like an elevated dining experience with truffle Parmesan fries and like a DJ and girls, you know, and cute heels. And I mean, that, that's, that is that vibe, you know? Right. Now I will say the, the, the one way that it's not like a nightclub is they, they don't do bottle service and, and, that for me is kind of the big thing. It's like, if, you know, like you can go to Bisu and get a bottle and it, it comes out with the sparklers and that's cool. People that like that, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to tell other people how to spend their money, but that's, but it's not for me. And so, but, so they're not doing that at, uh, at the Warwick. And I, and I think that's an important distinction. I give, give them, give them, give them three months. And I think it would be a good service for them if they did it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that may be true. They, they, they're not doing it now. They may, they may do it in the future. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that we always ask, would you go back? Um, yeah. Yeah, I would go back. I mean, 
if I was going out with a bunch of girls and wanted to do something like fun and get some apps and get cute and wear my finest Six Louis Vuittons, like, yeah. yeah, 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 I would totally do it. Uh, yeah, I, I want to see how that menu evolves. I know they're going to add lunch. You know, I'm a big Antoine fan. I, I think, you know, I like, you know, the, the proteins, like my, my steak was a little bit under, we had one lamb chop that was the requested medium, one that was way under, you know, I thought your Thai noodle salad actually was really delicious. I would get that again in a heartbeat. The shrimp were cooked nicely, all that stuff. But, you know, I, oh yeah, that was delicious. we, we kind of caught it as a work in progress. So I want to go back just to see how it evolves. And if it's like a little more confident, a little more consistent. And this is, this is an area that's changing and, and has some other new stuff. And, you know, we talked about Felice and I talked about Juliet a few weeks ago. There's a lot, there's some other things going on out there, but I, I think there was enough potential that I, that I would definitely go back. I think it's, I think it's a beautiful space. Absolutely. All right, Linda, I'm going to say that does it for the restaurants of the week. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much. And I will be uh, uh, one note. We, we, we have already recorded the interview with Tassos and Drew. And at one point I asked, Tassos about his wife, but I don't think I identified her. Tassos is married to Rula Christie, who is the host of the very popular Rula and Ryan radio show. So just for, for people who don't know, I, I kind of yada yada that part. I'm sorry about that. But that, <laughs> that is an important piece of context for the interview that is coming up right after this. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> <laughs> I am joined this week by two of the men responsible for Breadman Baking Company. Gentlemen, let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Owner Tassos Katsaunis, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. Head Baker, Director of Operations, Drew Gimma, welcome. How's it going, Eric? Good to see you again or talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Tassos, let me, let me start with you because... You know, I think the last time you came on here to talk about Breadman, it was shortly after you opened your your first bakery. You had some some restaurant clients. You were you were contemplating a, a whole. You know, you were in farmers markets. You were contemplating a home delivery service. You were maybe going to be in grocery stores. Uh, I know things have changed a lot. I mean, we're you know primarily we're here to talk about the fact that you you have a whole new facility, and we will get to that. But just kind of catch people up on what the last couple of years have been like for, for bread, man. Um, yeah. Um, I don't even know almost where to begin. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. So yeah, to your point, we started off really in farmer's markets with a few restaurant clients that just to really help us establish the brand, if you will. And, uh, in my opinion, and this was a bit of my philosophy and way of thinking was to also establish some credibility in the market. And I think a part of that is just because of the nature of how the business got started out of my home kitchen. So I wanted people to understand and agree with me that we were a legitimate option, if you will, in the marketplace 
in terms of uh, an artisan commercial bakery with the offerings we had. Um, so I thought the initial approach was, you know, let's get ourselves established. Let's go to farmer's markets. Let's showcase the product. I knew a lot of the chefs in the market um, visited a lot of those similar markets. And, um, and so I think that really helped along with the credibility that we had established as a whole food supplier, which came on. Um, we opened the Stella Link location, our first location, um, July of 2018. And Whole Foods, we were fortunate to get the call from Whole Foods December of 20, um, 2018, um, requesting a partnership opportunity. And so I think once you put those two things together, it really helped go, okay, these guys are for real. So as things uh, continue to grow organically and with a lot of, uh, a lot of hard work on our end, obviously, um, yeah, there was initial thought of doing kind of uh, taking a page out of my previous career in management consulting uh, with maybe with a little disruption in mind, right, to to create a subscription-based service, which we determined at scale did not work. Um, and so we started focusing more and more on wholesale uh, locally with restaurants and hotels and then continuing to grow the relationship with Whole Foods. Uh, because that's really where the kind of company was headed and that's where the demand was. So we've since grown that um, over time, uh, obviously to the extent to where we had to move into a larger facility to accommodate the demand um, <clears throat> and really allow us to, to do more um, than what we were capable of doing at Stella Link. But now we're, oh, 170 restaurants, I think, in the, our total wholesale customers in the Houston area. Um, now we have product going to Dallas on the regular basis. Um, still with Whole Foods, we've got a few select HEBs um, that we still service from when we helped supplement during the pandemic or the heart of the pandemic when the city closed. Um, and we're uh, on the process or in the process of onboarding another grocery retailer, which I can't name yet. Uh, but I will as soon as I can with you, of course, because, um, <laughs> okay. you know, I, I like I always like uh, sharing information with you when I can. Um, and then we're also entertaining another one, another retailer. So um, it's been um, and we've got another thing in the works that I can't I can't quite mention yet um, until we get the paperwork signed, which is in the works. But that would be the biggest opportunity for the company yet. Um, and it would be on a national scale. So. Um, yeah, we've, we've evolved and we've, uh, kind of, you know, when I was fortunate enough to bring Drew on, um, you know, I told Drew, I guess, part in the initial dialogue we had over dinner at Blue Dorn, actually, um, when we first met to discuss the possibility of him coming to work for, for me. Um, and I say that loosely because I really look at Drew as a, as a partner more than anything. Um, but I remember telling him specifically that, you know, the company is really, really heading up. It's really moving on its own. Right. And I think it's going to be the main focus for us is to be uh, the responsible ones to kind of grab the reins when we feel like we need to and kind of help guide it in the path that it wants to go. But do it at a at a pace that makes a lot of sense um, in terms of you know, scalability and just, you don't want to over, you know, get ahead of your skis by any stretch because that's how companies implode. Um, but yeah, it's, um, 
it's been the craziest thing I've ever been a part of. Um, the most enjoyable and happy I've ever been. Um, never worked harder in my career, um, but I'm, I feel very fortunate to have conversations like this with you, with you, to kind of speak to the the growth and the success of the company to date. I mean, we've been in business now since, yeah, four years. We'll be in we'll be in July, and we've we've done quite a bit. Um, more than I ever had planned <laughs> in my business plans that I had written and rewritten and rewritten uh, than I that I thought that uh, than I would ever imagine. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> no, it does. No, Drew. I mean, this seems like a, a good opportunity to kind of bring you in. I mean, I, you know, I think I think I first met you. You were part of sort of Roy Schwarzapel's like pastry dream team with the opening to Common Bond and. You know, I know you you were you and uh, Mark Clayton opened Squabble together for for Bobby Hugel and Justin Yu, and and now you're at at Breadman. So maybe maybe just sort of talk about your kind of roots as a as a bread baker, and and then kind of why Breadman seemed like the right next step for you after after Squabble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I've been baking for just just about twenty years now. Um, you know, kind of started off, uh, no real intentions of making it a career, but I got, um, got a job offer, uh, living in Connecticut to, uh, you know, learn how to make bread. And, you know, at that time I was a dietary aide in a nursing home and, uh, didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. So I figured why not give it a shot? Um, and ended up, you know, maybe probably about four years in actually enjoying it. Uh, and it wasn't just a job anymore. Um, and so, you know, decided to move to New York and then got the opportunity to, uh, help open common bond with Roy, um, and some other really talented individuals here in Houston. And so that's what brought me down here. Um, and you know, things, things happen in the restaurant industry and, uh, you know, what you had planned on can change very quickly. So, you know, bounced around a little bit. Um, and when I got the chance to, uh, I think Bobby and Justin were opening in the process of opening better luck tomorrow. Um, and they knew that, you know, I'd pretty recently left common bond and had a conversation with Justin. He's like, look, I, this is probably not really uh, what you're looking for, but do you want to come make bread, you know, for our little bar? And I was like, uh, absolutely. Because um, two people that I really respected and still immensely respect uh, as to what they do. Um, and, you know, not too long after that, we started talking about opening a, was originally a pizza place, but became Squabble. Um, and I think I'm singing a familiar tune here, but I think a lot of us uh, in the restaurant industry, after going through the pandemic, started to really look at, at our careers and, and what that industry, uh, you know, had done to us, not necessarily in a, in a negative light, just, you know, I started to really evaluate where I was, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, was closing in on 40 and am 40 now and started to look at, you know, what is what are the next 20 years of my life look like? Um, and, you know, after having a conversation with, you know, Bobby and Justin and Mark and Terry, uh, I think they could see that I, I wasn't really happy at squabble. Right. I was, um, you know, I appreciate the trust that they put in me. Um, but I wasn't a chef and, and I started to recognize that in myself and I, I felt a little uncomfortable in my position. Um, and after talking to them and, you know, they, 
you know, we felt that it was a good idea to, um, you know, mutually part ways. And, you know, I still, still really, I still go to Squabble. I still go to all the, you know, Bobby's places and Justin's places. I really, you know, they're, they're very good people. Mark's an outstandingly talented chef. And I don't think he, he gets enough uh, praise because he's kind of, he's a little humble. Um, but he's, he's really, really talented. So I love those people. Um, but so when I started thinking about this, I, I didn't want to go back to another retail bakery. Um, I wanted to do something more. You know, I would spent so much time in this industry and gained a lot of knowledge and, you know, felt like my, my strength beyond just being a bread baker was, was planning, was, was, um, you know, helping manage a business. And so I wanted to find that position for me to really take the next step in my career and not just go back to being a production manager or something like that. Uh, and so I called up Tassos because he was kind of the wholesale, the only wholesale bakery in, in Houston that I would really consider working for uh, and otherwise was going to, you know, maybe go back to Connecticut or New York. And luckily we, we hit it off and he had a, you know, he was in this process of growth and he really needed someone to kind of help him out with that and, um, you know, manage, manage operations uh, so he could step away and and focus on growing the business. Um, and so ever since then, it's been, I've been incredibly happy here. Um, I, I feel like I am taking that next step in my career and, and challenging myself in, in new ways. And, you know, opening a, a 40,000 square foot bakery is, it is not an easy thing and it is very stressful, but it's outrageously rewarding to see how quickly we're, we're doing this and the fact that we're doing it well uh, and not rushing it has been excellent. So Tassos, let me, let me pivot back to you a little bit. I mean, I know, I know you're, you're, you were a consultant, you're a numbers guy. So, yeah. so give me the numbers. Like what is, what is going to a space that 10 times bigger? Like how, what does that mean for you in terms of we could produce a certain number of loaves before, and now we could produce a bigger number. You know, what are, what are you cranking out these days? Yeah. So, uh, so from, in terms of just capacity and capability, um, you know, it was really important for us to invest in the future of the company, not just in the now. Um, so when we made the conscious decision to sit down and put the work and the effort that took quite a few months to, to put together to really understand what the company needed um, for short term and the long term in terms of capabilities, capacities that could produce X amount of square foot of revenue or X amount of revenue per square foot is the way that we were really looking at it. Um, you know, we, we knew that we needed to make a, an investment that made sense, right? So that, you know, we could, we could scale it because the fear was after doing a lot of research and spending a lot of time, fortunately, with other bakery owners similar to us um, in other parts of the country that were really kind enough to open their doors to us, um, and look toward their facilities and understand their growth and understand how they approached it. You know, we came to the conclusion that you know, <laughs> to take the take a take a page and the uh, advice of now a friend of mine up in Boston who operates a massive two hundred thousand square foot bakery, is we needed to build the biggest baddest bakery we could afford, and um, and and it was gonna it, it, the people would come as as he put it. Um, and I thought he was crazy to say that. Um, I really thought he was insane. I was like, how am I going to go back to Houston with build it? And they will come. That's that I can't do that. And I, so I, but I did build it into the narrative, right? 
uh, in terms of the financials and what this place could do. So we went from, you know, the Stella Link location, I think, at very max, busting at the seams, literally having to move Fred out of the way to get into our office. I think we were producing maybe 5,000 at top capacity uh, per day, total units, individual units. Here with the new facility, um, I think we've calculated an estimate of about between 30 and 35,000 units per day in daily wow. production. Okay. Um, which is obviously a huge leap, um, but you know, economies to scale and volume is the name of the game when it comes to, to the business that we're in. And so we wanted to ensure that not only could we produce what we needed in the short term, but also the long term for scalability, we designed the facility with that in mind. So to make it really simple to plug in additional equipment or expand additional equipment that we had or expand the current equipment that we have to accommodate more growth and scalability, um, but also give it, you know, get into a space that gave us capability of extending our reach in terms of where could we send product to. And, you know, there's a lot of, there was a completely, um, uh, a new revenue stream that we could not tap into at the Stella Link location because we didn't have the capability for it, nor the space for the equipment to make it happen. And now in the new space, we invested um, in a blast freezer, uh, blast freezing technology to enable us to still be able to preserve freshness uh, in product without filling it with a bunch of chemically based conditioners or additives or anything like that. Uh, to then be able to extend the reach and put it uh, on a truck and send it to Dallas, for example, um, and still it be, um, you know, still artisan quality that we strive for here every day. That's very important to us and part of our ethos and DNA here at the company. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a massive freezer here that helps us, you know, turn that over. So uh, that was really the key, right, is to try to look, if you're going to make this investment into a space 10x what you were in before, it needed to make sense and we needed to build it out accordingly. So, you know, we invested in a lot of equipment, quite a bit of equipment, but a lot of the equipment that we took our time in assistance with um, a master baker who has led the Coupe de Monde team actually to, uh, to wins at the global scale who assisted us with the design and procurement of the right equipment based on the products that we currently produce and the products we wanted to produce moving forward. So yeah, it's, it's a big, big jump. Like Drew and I actually now have our own office, whereas before we shared it with like six other people. So <laughs> that alone was just like totally worth moving over here. <laughs> yeah. Drew, I mean, you know, I, you know, I remember talking to Tassos when this this first started and, and Breadman began with him, you know, making everything by hand, cooking them in, in you know, Dutch ovens, yeah. you know, very, like, very traditional, very artisan. What about that can you preserve, you know, in this new facility and what kind of has to be adapted, you know, kind of balancing quality and volume? Absolutely. And I, I definitely a question that I've thought about um, quite a bit because, yeah. you know, that's really important to the business is that we maintain artisan quality. Um, and so Tassos and I have, you know, discussed what actually is artisan and what does it mean to do clean bread and, and all of that. And I think the main thing uh, in terms of 
this scale uh, and making it artisan is simply time. Um, I don't think you need hands touching bread at, you know, the, the equipment that exists today um, can shape bread or, you know, bread better than I can. Right. So to me, that part of the process is enhanced by equipment because it comes out consistently every single time. Um, but the places where it, you know, it really matters is uh, pre-ferments, right? So we don't skimp out on pre-ferments. We still use sourdough starter. We still use pulishes, uh, bigas and stuff like that, that add a lot of flavor and strength to the bread. Um, our mixers are same spiral mixers we've always used. They're just a lot bigger, right? Uh, ovens are still the same. In fact, we invested in much better ovens than we had at the old place, right? So they're uh, more programmable. You can, um, you know, the steam is better on them. The temperature control is better on them. And so all those things combine to still make an artisan product that once again, to me, what it comes down to is fermentation, right? So how long is your fermentation on any of these breads? Um, and that's something we still we will never get rid of. We will never try to take a sourdough and make it in two hours, right? That's impossible. That won't be good bread. And so that's where the, the quality of our bread has been maintained is that we don't shorten our process at all. We've simply given us equipment to, once we have the bread, um, you know, we can process it quicker through a piece of equipment. We can bake it because we have a larger oven, but that bread doesn't change fundamentally uh in this space yeah yeah quality and the consistency has always been something that's been super important to drew and i um you know from the very beginning i've always said i never <clears throat> i was never a fan of taking shortcuts because it's not how i was taught how to make bread at a young age um i think it, there's i think there's too much gray area in today's market at least it's been kind of my or today's industry i should say that's kind of been my experience of people that can claim to produce and quote an artisan product and i use quotes air quotes when i say that um but they'll take shortcuts to get it there they'll you know it's not it's not uncommon that there's bakeries that will use some sort of a flavoring agent to make it a sourdough um but not necessarily ferment it with the natural fermentation process that we take here um and to drew's point the equipment really helps us do it at volume at scale but also from a stress-free perspective, similarly to what we would do by hand, we can just do it um, at, at greater volume um, and, uh, and still maintain the integrity of the product because we fermented it the natural way in the traditional methods. We've mixed it using the exact same methods, um, but you know, it's, still being, it's still being proofed and fermented in, in, within the time frame that it needs to build the flavor to 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 uh, build up the aesthetics of what's expected of that product uh, that is labeled artisan, and then you know baking it traditionally in the deck ovens with steam um, and investing in better equipment. I mean that's that's really how we we do things here on a daily basis. Yeah, and one other quick thing is, um, you know, the equipment has a is actually allowing us, I think, to improve our bread in ways. Um, you know. Fairly recently, I've started working on a new sourdough to kind of replace our current one um, because Tassos and I both agree it could be better. Uh, and it was something I hadn't done in the past um, before we got into this space because translating my bread to, you know, six or seven people that are hand shaping it, I, I worried how well that would go, right? 
Um, and I didn't want to, you know, we have a lot of customers in place that receive that bread every day. And so it's tough to, it's really hard to make that switch um, and not worry about the consistency of it. Yeah. So now that we have this equipment, it's much easier for me to, you know, I, our mixers are great. I really trust them. So I can give them a recipe and say, you know, mix it this way. They'll do it. The equipment's going to process that, um, that new sourdough in a way that is exactly how I want it to be done. Um, and then, you know, our, I trust our bakers to handle it from there. Um, but it was something that I didn't want to do in the past because of the hand shaping. Yeah. Um, and I know Tassos is always telling me to put my stamp on this bread. So, yeah. So if I can expand on that, Eric. Um, I always thought we had good bread, obviously, uh, if I didn't believe in the product and why am I here? But I, um, I, I also affirm that I think you have good bread. I've eaten uh, quite a bit of it. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, but I'm, I've always been of the mindset that we, we always have room for improvement. And maybe I think that's part of my personality of never being satisfied probably. But that being said, when you've got someone like Drew, um, you know, running your bread program, and you're aligned with in terms of philosophies and how we should be producing products and all of that. I, I've told Drew, this is your program. I want you to put your stamp on every product that goes out the store. So what that means for us and for everyone that's on the receiving end of the product is, you know, we're going to start improving one product at a time to really put Drew's stamp on it. I mean, Drew's an incredible baker, super talented. The guy knows fermentation at a molecular level, which is very impressive. Um, and, you know, there's better bread coming, uh, even though, yeah, we have good bread, but it's, gonna, it's going to improve, in my opinion, drastically um, over the course of time, one product at a time or even one product category at a time. So, yeah, I want Drew's bread out there more than I want. It's not about, you know, my bread or his bread. It's the company's bread, but you know, his talents um, are not necessarily being utilized as they should be, or could be, I should say. Um, and, you know, and it's only because we've just been so busy trying to get this place open and getting it, you know, organized and hiring and, and structured properly. And now that he's got the time, which is not a lot, but that he's got a little bit of time, I really want him to, uh, to put his mark on the product. So Drew, maybe maybe just expand on that just a little bit. What what does the the evolution of the breadman sourdough look like? Taste like like how will we when I see it on a at a restaurant somewhere or, or a loaf at Whole Foods? Like like how will I how will I know that it's improved? Uh, well, I think one thing right now is you know I really want to. Uh, I'm not a person or a baker obsessed with hydration the way some people are. Um, but I do think it can result in a, uh, a moister sourdough, uh, something that's going to keep a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, the tweet, one of the tweaks I'm making is, you know, we're going up, uh, uh about 6% in hydration. Uh, I'm also reformulating our sourdough. Uh, so right now we use a stiff sourdough, which is, um, is good and consistent. Uh, but I typically enjoy the flavor of a, a slightly wetter sourdough. Um, I think it, it yields, uh, it yields flavors outside of just, you know, acetic vinegar type of sourdough, right? You get more of a yogurty flavor out of it. Um, I think you'll see, uh, depends on what you're using it for, but, um, I think one thing Tassos always asked me for is a slightly more open crumb, uh, a little bit of inconsistency in it and not, you know, 
a, a super regular crumb. So, um, so I think just overall the flavor will be improved. Uh, it'll have maybe a longer shelf life because of the hydration. Um, and it's just, you know, I think it will look a little bit better. It should be a little bit more consistent. Uh, one thing with adding the hydration is, um, the scores will come out a little bit more evenly. Uh, they're less likely to, to bust, um, the way we, we sometimes see here and there. Um, you know, I think if it's, it's, the spread is not too far off from what I was making at, at squabble or common bond, you know, this, I kind of, I haven't changed how I do bread. I, I'm one of those yeah. people that's stuck in his ways. And so if it's, you know, it's worked ever since common bond, um, and so it'll be really, I think really similar to what I was doing out of there. Uh, I've obviously learned a few things since then. Um, but the heart of it is, uh, sourdough with quite a bit of pre-ferment, which allows us to process it a little bit quicker while still getting the same amount of flavor, yeah. um, more inactive fermentation than active floor time fermentation. We're, we're a big fan of the perfect imperfections that comes with an artisan bread, right? Um, uniformity is, uh, is good in a lot of sense when it comes to, you know, food service customers and places like that. But, you know, it, it's still, I think people, when they, when they see and what they expect out of an artisan product, you know, the variances are part of the sexiness, right. That you see in, in the, each product from one to the next. So let me just ask you then, are there are there styles of bread or product categories that you're, you're not doing now that you're sort of thinking about? Like, cause, cause I mean, I remember you were, you, when you were at the farmer's market, you had a, a consumer focus, you know, there were cookies, there were croissants, there were cinnamon rolls. I, I don't have the sense you're doing any of that stuff anymore. Mm-mm. No, we, yeah, we stopped doing the Vinoiserie program when we left urban harvest, um, and because frankly, it's, you know, the, the, the bread uh, program was growing so much that we really needed to focus uh, that resource in terms of labor, right? Where, where the money was, frankly, um, and the demand was. Um, we, we've been entertaining the idea of bringing uh, or introducing some additional products, um, some bread category. There, there's been a mention of a cookie here or there. <laughs> Um, we're not sure if, you know, we're, we're still kind of in the early discovery of what we want to do to continue to set us apart from other bakeries in terms of products. Um, I think part of that will also kind of, uh, evolve as Drew is continuing to put his Drewness into the bread, if you will. Um, and, uh, I think we may see some, you know, what, what I've learned about Drew, he's, He's very science. This is what I, I think. This is where Drew and I really work well together. Is I think we're both left brain and right brain at the same time, not one or the other, because he's. We both can have and understand the science behind and the chemistry behind bread production and fermentation, but we're also. I think we both have a very creative side too, and I think that's where. Plus, we share the same vision. We we can really get stupidly creative with some of the stuff that we want to put out there. Um, and it will all depend on obviously some of the demand and it doesn't make sense from a production standpoint and all the other little nuance and details that take into consideration when you do that. But yeah. Well, well, let me sort of give you a little bit of a more of a big picture kind of, sure. you know, you, you entered a market with, you know, a couple of prominent sort of established artisan 
bread makers in Houston. Since you've opened, there's a couple of more sort of small startup types that are that have launched, but but nothing at your scale. I mean, how do you kind of see the future or, or, you know, what do you, you know, what, what is your goal for this? I mean, you, you, as you said, you, you, you know, you far outseated anything you sort of expected to achieve. So, so what do you recalibrate? What's the, what's the new, uh, what's the new goal? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's always been there from the beginning is I wanted to share the passion I have for this with as many people as I could. And this facility enables me to do a lot more of that. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, we now have capability with this facility and what it can do for us to, you know, do more retail opportunities outside of, you know, the city of Houston. Um, As you know, or I know you do, but um, so I grew up in Dallas and I moved down here to get married. Right. So. Um, I still have a lot of friends and family that, and, and back home that would absolutely salivate at the opportunity, which I get contacted for all the time, to be able to, to purchase bread up there at a, from a retail standpoint. Um, and I've got some product now going up to Dallas at restaurants that I'm getting asked for, where are they, so they can go up there. Um, and they're starting to do that, which is great. I mean, really, honestly, for me, Eric, is, you know, I started with the goal of wanting to put a lot of spotlight on Houston as an artisan bakery or as artisan bread town, right? Because it's, it's known for food and it's known for the chefs. And, um, you know, I think that side of it has been covered, but I still think bread has never been synonymous with Houston. And I always thought if I could be a part of that uh, process or movement, you know, I'd be really happy with that. Now I want to, with this space and what it can do for us and our customers, um, is put Texas on the map for that, if I can. And so that's now the new focus. I mean, Drew, you know, you think about kind of the great bread cities in America, New York, San Francisco, maybe Seattle, you know, from your perspective, like what does Houston or or what do you need to do at Breadman to get yourself at, at the level where we you know, we think about you with like a tartine or, or some of these other like really famous nationally celebrated bakeries. Um, I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's an uphill battle battle. I think, um, what could we do? I mean, I think, and it's something that Tassos and I have thrown out at the end of the day, I think wholesale is very hard to kind of get that attention in, mm-hmm. um, because you're doing such large quantities. And like you said, we want to, have fun with the bread and and play around with it. But at the end of the day, we, you know, as a director of operations, we're mostly, I'm mostly focused on making sure this bread is consistent day to day, making sure that our packers know how to pack it. Everyone knows how to mix it. um, And now we're addressing issues, uh, you know, as they come up throughout the day or the week. And so retail has an advantage of, you know what, we're just selling this to a customer. If something goes wrong here, well, that sucks for the business, but, you know, it's not the end of the world if we lose a batch because we're trying to push, uh, kind of push this bread really creatively um, into its limits. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to say we're, it's even in the realm of our thought right now, but I think more retail bakeries that are really 
pushing those limits is what it would take to get um, Houston on the map. And I think that, you know, eventually after we get through this, this massive amount of growth that we're going through, we might have a talk about a retail bakery again. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's inevitable, honestly. Um, and I say that because, you know, people, a lot of times will tell you what they want, right. In terms of customers and you, you know, if you're, if you want to, in my opinion, part of the success of any business owner is you also have to listen to people and tell them, you know, they're, they're telling you what they want. We get, we field phone calls here, Eric daily of where's your store. And we direct them to our, our retail partners, which is great for now. But as Drew put it, you know, we've got so much work ahead of us with this facility, new projects that are coming online, new business that's being realized in the next 30, 45 days and other larger projects that, you know, we're working on to, to hopefully bring on by the end of the year. Um, we've got to put focus on that first and, and get it to the point where it frees up bandwidth for Drew and I to start looking at the possibility of what a retail outlet direct from us looks like. Um, it is something I would like to do eventually. So for me, it's all about timing. Um, I don't want us to overexert ourselves or burn anyone out because we're trying to do too much at any given time. But um, it will eventually happen. We just need to understand what does that look like and what model does that look like and what the timing is um, for us. But, you know, and that would not more than likely be just bread and bread alone. I think that's when you would start to see some of the other product we used to produce at the farmer's markets that were also representative of our passion for artisan and high quality, you know, baked goods. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I mean, I remember walking into Cane Rosso years ago and seeing Drew behind the pizza oven and kind yeah. of having that, uh, that piano man moment of what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, at some point, right. Just as a diner, I, I, I would love to know what a, a Drew Gimma pizza tastes like. So would I, uh, <laughs> so it, would it, I it actually, has not, it has not left my, my brain in terms of doing another restaurant. I think pizza would be the only thing that I, I would ever even think about doing again. Um, I, yeah, it's in Tassos and I talk about it all the time. Uh, we're not at that place right now, but I think both of us would absolutely love to, yeah. to do some sort of pizza place um, because we're both, I'm incredibly passionate about it. <clears throat> you know, working at Cane Rosso was, uh, was really fun because it was my first time working um, in one and getting to learn a wood fired oven was really cool. Um, but no, I, I think about pizza a lot. <laughs> yeah. He and I are, are very passionate about pizza. We share that in common. We discovered that after we started working together. So it was so funny because I think it was discussed over dinner that, oh, you know, I really would love to do a pizza place one day. And I'm like, get out of my head, dude. Like, that's something <laughs> I want to do one day, too, to find something that would be really cool and sexy to introduce to the city that would be really amazing. And then, Tassos, of course, the other thing I have to ask you is, you know, coming from that consultant background, I mean, is this like your baby and you're going to ride this to the end? Or, or is there like what, what my friends in the startup world call a liquidity event? <laughs> I mean, do you do you contemplate like Tillman Fertitta or, or Cisco or somebody backs up the Brinks truck and makes you an offer you can't refuse? Um, I think about a lot of things, honestly. Um, 
you know, I've got a family, I've got three children, a wife, I've got other passion projects I want to do, to be honest. I, th I think about an exit at some point, but I, I don't think an exit would, for me, includes walking away from anything. Um, I, I still want to be involved um, in the business if I was fortunate to have that opportunity cross my desk. I'll tell you, I don't think it'll ever be Tillman or Cisco. Um, I know, I know, it would be other uh, other people out there that exist that are actively seeking these style or this type of bakery to to acquire. Um, but well, right. I mean, you're you're at Whole Foods, right? I mean, Amazon could say <laughs> we want to lock up all of your production for however many Whole Foods there are, and here's the number. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it's a uh, if the right deal were to come across my desk, I would not turn it. I, I would not turn a cheek to say I'm not going to look at it. I would definitely look at it. I think any any business owner would, um, especially in today's climate, um, because yeah, like you said, I mean, I've been part of other startups, and um, I know what some of these bakeries, um, if you do them right, can command in terms of a price. Um, but you never know. I mean, things change all the time. Um, Although something about to happen, it'd be probably a lot easier for us to put a pizza joint out there. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Then, the, you know, nest egg secured, you could do the pizza joint as a passion project. Uh, you well, know, I always said, as long as I can pay for my kid's college, I'm happy. <laughs> 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 and, I got, and I got three of them. So, you know, how expensive that's going to be. And two girls, that means two weddings to pay for. Good God. <laughs> you know, thankfully, you know, thankfully, your wife has also achieved some success in the world. Yeah, you know. no, I am very happy that my wife works and loves to work, thankfully, and does well at it. So um, she has always told me, I love what I do. And I don't necessarily want to be a stay at home mom. And I'm like, hey, you do whatever you want, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> I, I always love the thing about I, you know, oh, I could never, I could never accept, you know, a world in where my wife makes more money than I do. It's like, Please, like that. If, if that's my biggest problem in my relationship, like I'd, I'd be, I would be thrilled to be, you know, involved with someone who makes, you know, five times more money than I do. That'd be awesome. Oh, I'll tell you, Eric. I don't, I don't hate or dislike that she, that she's, uh, that she has so much success and that you know, yeah, makes more money than I do uh, for now. But I do use it as. Uh, motivation and drive and she gets it because we're both very competitive so we joke about this all the time right um the the kind of the inside joke we have between us is i always when i update her on anything new that happens at the bakery new customers new projects whatever i always end it with if it's over text with hashtag options for rula as kind of an inside joke right i said just in case you don't want to get up at 4 30 in the morning every day maybe one day i'll give you those options right <laughs> Yeah, I think you come on as your uh, director of communications or something. Oh, no. Look, think about it. If a guy from Dallas comes down and takes down the number one radio personality with bread, it's not a bad accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> It'd piss everybody off, but hey, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, I got to say that that brings me to the end of my questions. Uh, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you want to discuss? I don't think so. I mean, you know, we're... We, we brought on another gentleman here that um, that we really love having on board too. And I think part of the success of scaling or moving in and getting this place properly um, operational in the timeframe that we did is, you know, we went out and um, 
as Drew put it earlier, you know, moving into a 40,000 square foot space and getting that thing operational within the time frame that we did takes a lot of work, but also takes a lot of experience. And so what I did is we went out and found um, a plant manager that we've hired and his name is Leo Garza and we love Leo to death. He's, he's actually out on the production floor now, but Leo, we brought in someone who is lean certified, which means he lives and breathes efficiencies, which is the name of the game here, basically to do more with less. Um, and he, he came from, uh, a commercial, the commercial bakery background with like 25 years of experience. And he, um, you know, worked for people like Bimbo and HEB at their bakeries and kind of more in the conventional side, if you will, not artisan. Um, but we took someone who's got that level of experience, who's also been part of, uh, bakery startups of this size, like literally moving in and scaling these things up and pairing them and marrying him with, um, you know, the artisan talent that we have in Drew, and it's really proven to be a successful um, launch to this new facility because, you know, you get the best of both worlds in this case. You get someone who really understands the commercial aspect of production, the efficiencies that it needs, how that impacts labor, how that impacts your overall uh, P&L, and then you pair them with a guy that can understand, that knows and understands and lives and breathes the the actual product development side of it and the fermentation side of it um, and what that means to what he knows, what Leo knows. And it's really, it's really helped two best tires I've ever made, Eric, by far two best tires I've ever made. These guys are brilliant at what they do and they work so well together. Um, and, you know, it's a great, it makes up a great little senior leadership team here at the bakery and everybody really likes working for them and has a big, great, great deal of respect for them, including me. I work for these guys. They tell me what I can and can't do. (laughs) That's very true. It's an accurate statement. I consult with them first before I say yes to anything. But that's smart. That sounds smart. All right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Drew Gimma, I will start with you. What is your favorite ingredient? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> let's say mushrooms. Tassos, how about you? Yeah, mushrooms, actually. Yeah, right. I love fungus. Drew, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, Bob Dylan. Wow. Yeah. Solid. Tassos, how about you? Tim McGraw, unfortunately. <laughs> Drew, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, shoot. I'm not from Houston. He's um, not from Houston. <laughs> Is uh, I don't know. I, I might offend people with it. Is was Nolan Ryan? Nolan he was Ryan? An absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Nolan Ryan. I like you will not offend people with Nolan Ryan. All right, toss us. Know if he was like a ranger or something. Tosses, I, I know you're from I know you're from Dallas. You've lived in yeah. Houston a long time. You must have a favorite Houston sports figure. Uh, I do, and I'm gonna also say Nolan Ryan because he was also a ranger, and I was fortunate enough to watch him play at, at Arlington Stadium, the old Arlington Stadium up in Dallas, in Arlington. And so when I came here, I was like. The biggest argument I had it was like, oh, he's an Astro. I'm like, he was a Ranger longer, actually. <laughs> he's, wearing, he's wearing a Ranger's hat in the Hall of Fame. I think you've got a right to stand up. I do believe he is. <laughs> uh, Drew, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Yeah, uh, that's super easy. Uh, Crunchwrap Supreme from Taco Bell. <laughs> Tassos, how about you? Uh, double water burger with jalapenos grilled onions. And then Drew, last question. What is the newly opened Houston restaurant that you are dying to try, but haven't, haven't made it to yet. Oh, wow. 
Wow. Oh, geez. Um, how new? Because yeah. I haven't been out to eat very much. We don't get out much, Eric. We don't have um, I still haven't been to March, and I really like what uh, I've seen from Felipe there um, and the, the entire team. Um, so I'm really excited to get in there and try that. Uh, you know, I think those higher end tasting menus are really um, going on too long. March. <laughs> March. <laughs> Tassos, how about you? Um, I, you know what, Eric? It's what's funny is never been to March, but there's been restaurants that have opened longer that I still haven't been to. I still haven't been to Theodore Rex. Um, where else have I not gone? There's so many places. Yeah. It's insane. Well, I think Drew can get you in there. He knows a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think he can. I think. Well, you know, we do breads for them now, <laughs> ironically, um, at Squabble and at uh, BLT. Yeah. Um, so they just kind of came along with us when Drew kind of came over here. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many that I haven't been to, but those are kind of my initial because of my first. We've talked about March quite a bit actually yeah. here and talked about how we want to go try it. We've never tried it. You should go to March. You should definitely go to yeah, March. Yeah, we should. All right. Tassos, give us the website for, for Breadman and social media and how people can stay in touch with what you're working on. Yeah, sure. So the website is uh, breadmanco.com, uh, breadmanco.com. Instagram is the same, at breadmanco. Twitter, the same. On Facebook, you can find us at breadmanbaking. Breadmanbaking? <laughs> I think it's facebook.com slash breadmanbaking, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken. But we're, we're more heavily active on uh, Instagram uh, than anything. I, I looked it up. You are breadmanbaking on Facebook. Hey, I got it right. <laughs> All right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Yeah, of thank course. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having us, Eric. Good to speak to you and see you as always. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.